Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, and let's turn together to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13 will be our text this morning. Last Friday, I had the privilege of speaking at the interbit service of one of our veterans, Lieutenant Colonel Gary Jacoby. And each time I stand before a family at the National Cemetery in Dallas and look out over that sea of monuments, one word comes to my mind. The word is duty. Now, duty is a word that is out of favor in our society because for many it conjures up a stifling obligation or commitment level that they would just as soon do without. The word duty means exactly that, an obligation or responsibility. All people who make commitments have duties. It's not just those who join the military. Moral obligations to do what is right. For example, husbands and wives have a duty to remain sexually faithful to one another. Parents have the moral obligation to provide for the physical needs of their children. Witnesses in a court of law are obligated and duty-bound to tell the truth. The purpose of this sermon series that we're in is to remind all of us that church membership is also a commitment and therefore has attended duties that come with it. And last week we saw that each member of a church has the duty to pray for every other member of the church. But really all of the duties and responsibilities of church membership can be summarized with the commitment that we're going to talk about today and that is the duty to love one another. Now Jesus indicated that all of the law could be summarized by the command to love one another. Paul writes a similar thing in Romans 13. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. Now last week I, I told you that in just a few months, Lord willing, First Baptist Church of Keller is going to be debt free for the first time in many, many years. And when you borrow money, whether it's an individual or an organization such as ours, you have the duty the moral obligation to pay that money back on time. But when that money is finally all paid back, you no longer have that obligation. You are freed from it. And when Paul says to let no debt remain outstanding except to love one another, I take it he's saying there will never come a time this side of heaven when you no longer owe love to one another. You always have that duty to one another in the context of the local church. So this morning, I want us to examine one passage of Scripture, Romans 12, 9 through 13, and make comments on verse 9. Let love, Paul says, be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and hearing of His Word. Now one of the rallying cries we heard from those who were successful in changing the legal definition of marriage in our country just a couple of years ago was, you can't help who you love. You remember hearing that? 
That is, love is not something you do or held responsible for. Love is something that happens to you, that you stumble in or fall into without any fault of your own. Well, that definition is, of course, at odds with the Bible. The biblical teaching of love indicates that true love is outwardly focused, that it is a choice to put another person's interest before and above your own consistently. And the Bible says that Christians in the local church have duties as it relates to one another. We are commanded to love. And if love is something that simply happens involuntarily, why in the world would God bother to give commandments concerning it? He gives many. For example, Matthew 22, Jesus says, Love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and mind. He says we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, He said a new commandment I've given to you that you love one another. In Matthew 5, He takes it an even farther step when He says, love your enemies. That is not just those who you are magnetically attracted to, those who you're repelled by. Husbands, Paul says in Ephesians, are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. See, there are many commandments in the Bible concerning Christian love. This morning, for our time today, I want us to look at four characteristics of love in the local church among believers. Number one, verse 9 tells us that it is to be sincere. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, that's the negative way of saying it. Your translation of the Bible may put it a different way. They mean the same thing. The positive way is to say sincere. The negative way is without hypocrisy. They mean the same thing. You're probably aware that this word translated from the Greek hypocrite comes from their habit of having dramas. The Greeks loved plays. And they would build these amphitheaters. Of course, in those days they did not have electronic amplification. And so they would build these amphitheaters on the sides of hills so that it would be easier to hear. But one of the ways that they enabled people to hear is that the actors would wear masks and the mask would have a little horn extended from the mouth. But the mask not only amplified the sound of the speakers, they also showed emotion. It's very difficult to sit far away from a stage and see the nuances of body language. And so they would put a smiley face or a frowny face or a sad face on these masks. In fact, today I understand that the symbol of theater in our schools today are those masks. Well, that's where we get the Greek word hypocrite. It means to hide behind a mask, to be two-faced, to pretend to be something you're not. And Paul says one of the characteristics of Christian love is it's not like that. It's not hypocritical. It is genuine and sincere. Peter in 1 Peter 1.22 says this, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. That is, Christian love must be real. Now, Peter and Paul, I felt, I believe, are felt compared to share that by the Holy Spirit because we know experientially that people often give the appearance of love, but it's found out to be anything but. It's insincere, it's hypocritical. And love is insincere when it is designed to ultimately benefit oneself rather than the object of love. Here's what I mean. People talk about love and do things for other people that seem on the surface to put the other person first, but in reality they're manipulating the object of their affection for their own benefit. How do they do that? Well, one is through flattery. Flattery. Now, we know that slander is harmful and dishonest. Slander is when we exaggerate a person's 
negative qualities beyond what is reality to make ourselves look better. But the evil twin of slander is flattery. That is, when we pretend to be loving someone, we exaggerate their positive character traits, not for their benefit, but to manipulate them to ultimately get something from them that we want. And people use quote unquote love to manipulate others all the time. And here's usually the way that happens. They threaten to withhold love unless they get their way. I love you so long as you do A, B, and C. When you cease to do A, B, and C, I'm going to withhold my love. We say, well, certainly that never happens in the local church. Well, you'd be surprised. There are churches that pledge their budget every year. I'm thankful that we do not. Those churches uh, every year in December send out cards to their membership and say, what do you pledge to give next year? And one of the ways that wealthy and powerful people in those churches sometimes manipulate and call it love is to threaten to withhold their pledge if they don't get their way in the church. If they don't get the pastor they want or they don't paint the building the color they want. And friends, that is not love. That is insincere and that is hypocritical and may it never be said here. Love must be genuine. And the purest and most genuine and sincere form of love that I know anything about is familial love. The kind of love that relatives have for one another, particularly parents for children. That is why I'm convinced the New Testament presents the local church often in terms of a family. A household of faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father. You don't love your family if you're a good family member because they are always so attractive and irresistible, right? Moms, is that true? You love your children because they always obey you and they always do what you tell. No, that's not right. You love them because they're yours. God in His sovereignty has placed them in your home and you in theirs. If you love your family, and by the way, the church is a family, you don't just walk away when things are not going well. If you're a good family member, you're not in a restaurant and you see another family in the next booth that's more attractive than yours. And you move over and say, can I be in your family? <laughs> no, you, you love the family God places you in. And so it must be sincere and, and, and genuine. Secondly, love is humble. Look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. One of the great distinguishing marks of biblical Christianity is humility. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, Let this mind, or this attitude, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He talks about Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, in heaven, did not hold on to His place of glory, but willingly, the Greek says, emptied Himself, poured Himself out, took on the form of a man, and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. He says, let that attitude be in you, in the church. Put the needs of others before your own comfort. Give preference, he says, to one another in honor, which simply means you're not fighting for the spotlight. You are genuinely glad when another person in the church does something for the glory of God. That is, they exercise and use their spiritual gifts for God's glory. Glory. You're not jealous of the attention they get. You're genuinely happy that God was glorified through them. Some pastor has said, and he's close to right, I think that true humility in the church is 
observing someone in the church do what you do better than you do it and being happy about it. That's true humility. And that's true Christian love. And so true Christian love is genuine, it's sincere, it's humble. But then thirdly, it is tenacious. Look at verse 11. Not lacking behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now there's a rapid fire series of phrases that really indicate the tenacity that's called for in church love. It's like a bulldog, not letting go. And do you know what the difference between true Christian love and a Rottweiler dog is? The Rottweiler will eventually let go. But true Christian love does not. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for times of adversity. I say it all the time. I do not know. I cannot comprehend how people who don't have a local church make it in this life. We need one another. We need that tenacious kind of love. He says, don't lag behind. That is, be intentionally focused, diligent, putting as top priority loving one another. And he says, fervent in spirit. Now, our church is not known for its emotionalism. Okay? That's okay. Not everyone has to be the same. But there are times where emotion is appropriate in the church. I think that's what he's talking about when he says fervent of spirit. It's really a Greek word that means to bring to a boil. It is obvious that we love one another. It's not a hidden thing. We don't have a dead or unemotional love for one another. That's why the scripture says to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And one of the biggest surprises that I've had in my years of ministry is how much emotional energy it requires to be a pastor. How it hurts when one of our people falls into sin or gets divorced or becomes sick unto death. It's painful. And it ought to be. And yet there, there are times of great joy. He says rejoicing in hope when we gather together and we talk about the cross and we talk about redemption and when we talk about heaven. Those are times of great joy. Sweet times of corporate rejoicing when two young people who grow up in the church come together in holy matrimony. When a dear saint of the Lord who has a great reputation in the church passes away and goes to heaven. Those are times, believe it or not, of great rejoicing. Jesus told the story about a prodigal son, a prodigal son who went away and fell into deep sin. But even while he was in the pig pen, he came to his senses and he came home and his father was waiting for them and they had a party when he got home. It's okay for Christians to be happy. When I first joined this church 18 years ago, we had a baptism service that first week. And after the person was baptized and they came up out of the water, you all did what you did just now. You broke into applause. And it scared me to death. <laughs> I've never been in a church where they clap when somebody got baptized. But the more I've thought about that, uh, what is more appropriate to thank the Lord for and to give applause to than a, a lost sinner coming to salvation? We ought to rejoice when a lost sheep is found. Then he says we're to persevere in tribulation. That means not giving up when times get hard. And if you'll go back and read the history of First Baptist Church of Keller, we have about 130 
two years of that history now, you'll find that times have not always been good. This church has gone through floods and fires and depressions, two world wars, and yet here we are. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've already come. Someone before us persevered in tribulation. And if we live long enough, we'll be called upon to persevere in tribulation, not to give up and go our separate ways when the times get hard. And listen, that's what true commitment is. That's what allows you to have confidence is knowing your church family is going to make it through hard times. My wife, Melissa, and I don't have a perfect marriage. I'd be lying if if I said we did. But here is what we both know. Neither one of us is going to leave when the time gets hard. We've been through some hard times. You have. And since we've gone through those hard times, it's reconfirmed what we thought we knew and that this other person's here for the long term. That's the way it ought to be in the local church. I think we ought to start thinking about church membership more like marriage than we do. It is a true commitment that comes with duty. I've told you before, I'll say it again, if Melissa ever leaves me, I'm going with her. And the fourth thing we see is true love is generous. Verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Christian love is not just speaking the words, I love you. It's living it out. And I'll tell you a little secret. I love bragging on you all, and I do. When I go to denominational meetings like I did in Nashville, Tennessee this week, I like telling people about how generous you are. There are over 20 exhortations to the church here in chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 is really a measuring stick of sanctification. If you want to know if you're making progress in sanctification, read Romans 12 regularly. And when you do, you'll have, if you're like me, two separate experiences depending on which verse you're in. So many times when we read these exhortations, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit that we're not measuring up to that. You've had that experience. And then on the other hand, when you read a verse and you'll say, you know what, I've made progress there. If you're sincere and ask the Lord to help you understand that, you'll say, you know, I'm not what I want to be, but praise the Lord, I'm not what I used to be. I have seen genuine progress and sanctification in that area. And I had that experience again this week as I read through Romans chapter 12 several times. But This is the verse where I was so encouraged as it relates to our church. A couple of weeks ago, I announced that a friend of mine in Houston who's a pastor asked me for some help. He said, can your church send some food and some clothes? We got wiped out in our mission downtown. And that's all I had to say. I knew if I said it, you'd do it. I've seen you do it time and time again. That truck outside, you saw that yellow Penske? You could not get another box in it. You filled it up in just a few hours yesterday. And look, we need to be careful about patting each other on the back all the time. But it's appropriate from time to time to say, Lord, thank you that we've made progress in this area, the area of of generosity. It's true of a church, but it's true of individuals. Hospitality is something that is devalued, unfortunately, in our culture. Hospitality means opening your life and opening your home to the needs of of other people. And and I've seen you do that so many times. And my prayer is that commitment to hospitality and generosity 
will be clearly seen in our vision plan. When we come out with our plan in a few months, we say we believe this is where the Lord is leading us once we're debt free, that a major component of that will be generosity. That now that we don't have this obligation of debt every month, we're free not to hoard money, but to give it away. And would you pray for our committee that the Lord would give us a clear path and direction on that. In conclusion, I want to ask us some questions. One is, why is the command to love so vital? I think there's several reasons. Number one, it's because it is the virtue that binds all others together, according to Colossians 3.14. The Bible says that, uh, for example, one list of virtues is simply three. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. It's because the others are encompassed when we're loving the right way. And another reason we ought to talk about love more is because Christian love enables perfect and flawed people to live together without killing each other. And I say that very sincerely. It's the reason marriages can last 50, 60, 70 years like some in our church have. Not because people are perfect, far from it. It's because love bears with one another, according to Ephesians 4, 2. That's true in the church as it is in the home. In fact, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, above all things you do in the church, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, he's not saying ignore sin. That's a misreading of this verse. Go back to verse 9 of chapter 12, and Paul will tell you exactly what Peter means. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. If we've got people in our family who are living in sin, and we say, oh, I love them too much to correct them. We don't love them. We love our own comfort. Right? It's, it's like a parent who has children that are going down a path of destruction, and they say, oh, I just love them too much to spoil their fun. No, you don't. You love your own comfort more than you love your children, if that's your attitude. He's not saying to, to pretend the sin doesn't happen. He's saying be forbearing and patient and loving towards one another. And that is the proper response, even to a brother in sin. Now, in conclusion, I said that already and went on, didn't I? I mean it this time. 1 John 3. Let's turn there towards the end of the scriptures. 1 John chapter 3. You know that uh, the Apostle John is sometimes referred to by his nickname, the Apostle that Jesus loved, right? He talked about love a lot in his writings. 1 John chapter 3, he gives us a template to know if we're doing it correctly. From time to time, we'll have a family in our church who will get transferred with their job to another city. And they'll come to me in tears and say, Pastor, we, we know we've got to move, but we just can't stand the thought of leaving our church family. You know what I say? Good. Because if you can leave this church and it not hurt you, you were not doing it right. Any more than you can leave your own flesh and blood and not have pain associated with that. Now that doesn't mean you ought to hold on to your church membership here out of some sense of nostalgia. I believe that when you, God moves you to a different place, you ought to find a local family 
to be a part of there to use your spiritual gifts. But it ought to be painful if you're doing it right. This is what John says. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. He says, we know love by this. That you can recognize the kind of love Paul and Jesus were talking about like this. Here it is. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Christian love is not easy, but it is simple as it can be. It is not complicated. Not easy, but not complicated. It's putting other people and their needs before your own constantly and continually. And the example that Paul gives in Ephesians in the in context of marriage, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. If you want to know, husbands, how you're supposed to love your wife, love your wife like Jesus loved the church enough to die. Now, when a young man comes to me and says, I'm ready to get married, I'll say to him and read those verses. He'll say, oh, I'm ready to do that. Now, what he means by that is if there's a runaway bus rolling down the hill towards his wife, he'll shove her out of the way and take it head on. Or if a burglar breaks into their home, he'll push her out of the way and take the bullet. And I'll say, that's good. You ought to love your wife like that. But, but the truth is, statistically speaking, it's almost sure that that will not happen. It's rare indeed to be called upon to take a bullet for another person. But here is what is a statistical certainty. In marriage, you will be called on multiple times a day to decide whether or not to put your spouse before yourself. That's what he means. Well, that's what John means in the context of the local church. Now, it's unlikely that literally one of you will be called to lay down your life for another person. Who knows? If we are called to do that, we should. Here's what he's saying. We ought to lay down our lives daily for the brethren. That is to put others' needs ahead of our own. Verse 17, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The implication is it doesn't. If you have someone in the church who has an obvious need, they've been laid off from work or um, they have lost their spouse and they're broken hearted and we just pat them on the back and say, good luck. Don't say you love that person. If you have the ability to meet their need and Close your heart to them and, and don't do it. He goes on verse 18, he says, little children, that is a term of endearment. John was an older man by the time he wrote these epistles and he writes to the members of the church and he says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Now he's not setting a prohibition against saying I love you. We ought to do that. But it ought to be backed by action. It's a similar thing that the Apostle James said when he said faith without works is what? It's dead. John is saying, saying you love another person and not meeting their tangible needs shows that the faith is not real. It's disingenuous. It is hypocritical and insincere. Now before we go, I want to go back and read those verses one more time. Just let them wash over you. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, 
not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. That's Christian love. Now, Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this uh, clear teaching of your word. And Lord, as usual, it is convicting. I confess that I fall short in some of these areas, but Lord, I thank you that you're a God of many chances. And Father, sanctification is progressive in nature. We are ever growing into the image of Christ. Forgive us, Lord, where we fall short. Point out those deficiencies, Lord, and give us the ability, Father, as you lead us by your Spirit to fulfill these commandments. Lord, I pray that our church would have the reputation, as I believe it does, of loving one another and loving the lost. Father, I pray that uh, Satan would never have a foothold here to bring about disunity or broken relationships. Help us always to be on guard against that. Father, I know when all of us put the others in this congregation before ourselves, then this will be a congregation that truly glorifies Christ. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.